Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. The Sound and Vision podcast book is now available for pre-order. Why I Make Art features an in-depth look at 30 artists, from Chris Martin to Robin Williams. There's also thematic quote sections and images from sketches artists contributed to the Sound and Vision guest book. It has a foreword written by Rishikesh Hirway of the Song Exploder podcast and Netflix show. You can get your copy at the Altelier Editions website. There's a link in the Sound and Vision website to pre-order yours today. My solo show, Escape Plan, is up now at Miles McHenry Gallery at 511 West 22nd Street in Manhattan. The show will be up until April 23rd. You can check out the catalog at the Miles McHenry website. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. All the paintings in my current show are made with Golden. And in fact, I've been using Golden for about 20 years. Golden makes the best acrylics, oils, and watercolors in the business. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based in Seattle, Fulcrum makes incredible coffee that you can have delivered to your door. They have subscription services where you can have different blends delivered that you tailor to your favorite balance of coffee beans. You could save 20% on your order by entering the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you order from their site. Check out their amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Paul Natkin is widely considered Chicago's greatest music photographer. The son of a photojournalist, Paul's career flourished in the heyday of rock and roll as he traveled from show to show documenting both rising stars and icons of the music industry. A true music fan, Paul's passion and workmanlike approach to his trade has made him the photographer to the stars for over a four-decade career. He was the official touring photographer for the Rolling Stones, becoming friends with Keith Richards, and documenting the North America tour of the New Barbarians. He continues to attend shows and shoot portraits at his studio on Chicago's North Side. He has a new upcoming book coming out on Trope Publishing. I talked to Paul about everything from the Stones to the Beatles, from Prince to Steve Albini, traveling, getting access, what makes a good photo, and so much more. Here's our conversation. So, can we jump in? <laughs> um, you're, are you in Chicago? Yes. It's one of my favorite cities. Wow, me too. Are you, were you born and raised? Yeah, I lived here pretty much all my life. Right, and you know, I, I know a little bit about your father's photographic history and that story of how gotcha. you found photography. So, um, so your parents both, I mean, you... You're born and ra- were you born and raised in the city area or uh, north, north side, north side okay. of the city. Yeah. And been there your lifer. Yeah. I, there were a couple of years where I moved out to moved out to Colorado one year and that didn't last very long. And other than that, I've been here the whole time. What area of Colorado? Denver? Uh, vale. Oh, Vale. The mountains. Yeah. That was actually during a younger part of my life. Sure. Why not? Right. 
you, but you've done a lot of travel too. So it's not like you've just been. Yeah, but it's not, it hasn't really been travel. It's been like travel with a band, which means you don't see anything other than inside of a bus in a venue. Right. Yeah. No. Inside of a plane in a venue. Yeah. It's kind of like a weird, I, I should preface, I mean, I'm an artist and I do this podcast where I talk to artists and musicians, but um, I grew up playing music and I was in a band and I toured and, you know, so music right. is a big part of my life as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's a weird way to see. And, you know, when we were on tour, it was before the days of cell phones and, and GPS and all that stuff. So right. it's kind of a fun, crazy, great way to see the country, but it's weird. It's like truck stops and highways, you know, it's really hard to really hard to find a restaurant that everybody in the band wants to eat at at the same time. Yeah, well, our first iteration was guitar, cello, and drums. We were a three-piece. And we had a vegan, a vegetarian, and a meat eater. Wow. And then the second... It caused some problems. Yeah, it was a real... And back then, you know, this is like, you know, early, late 90s, early 2000s. There's not much vegetarian fare. You know, it was the, right, or vegan, right. I should say. The vegan thing was really tough, so... But, you I, know... I, uh, I spent a... a summer road managing a, a band from LA where the two girls were vegetarian militant vegetarians oh yeah and the, the two guys and me were all well I, I don't eat red meat but I eat you know every other kind of meat right the other two guys ate anything and all the girls would eat were salads <laughs> and they eventually became really ornery in the bus because they weren't getting any protein or in the van, I should say, not the bus. Yes. And, uh, it was uh, it was a pretty brutal trip after a while. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, being on tour will test anyone's metal as far as like, you know, dietary input and, you know, well, <laughs> just sleep that, and all that stuff. So Social impact also. We, we left L.A. with all the best friends. And by the time we got to New York, nobody was talking to anybody else. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't talked to, this was 2001. And I haven't talked to uh, either one of the girls since. <laughs> yeah, it, it can it can stress people out. I mean, it tests, you know, your abilities to to be with someone. I and mean, it's more exactly. than like a marriage in a way, because when you go on tour, you're not there's no separation. It's exactly just the, those people usually sweaty. <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> sweaty, smelly van. Yeah. So growing up, how did you get into music? Um, I, I wasn't into music when I was growing up. My mother was a classical music fan and that's all she listened to. Oh, and killed I, it for you. I wasn't, well, I wasn't allowed to listen to anything else. Oh, really? They were that strict? Uh, well, they just, there, there was no availability. Right, right. And, uh, there was a radio station in Chicago, still, still around called WFMT. Right. That was classical music, um, except for two hours every Saturday night at 10.30 in the evening, and it was rebroadcast Wednesday at one o'clock in the afternoon, and it was a folk music show. And she would let me stay up late on Saturday night and listen to it. And that's where I first heard Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joni Mitchell, and you know, all those people. And that's how I got into music. And And I rebelled as soon as I was able to move out and, you know, listen to rock and roll. Of course. That must have been, I mean, that folk stuff must have felt like punk, you know? like. Well, I still love folk music. I, I still think it's great. Yeah. And uh, 
it says something, you know, it, it's people that actually have something to say. Uh, I take folk music over most music today, any day of the week. So you're a lyrics guy. You're, you're sort of the narrative. Well, it's, it's got to be good. People what? have to know how to play their, their instruments and they have to, they have to say something. Yeah. Now, it, the sort of I would imagine that's kind of like a parallel to that would be like you like a good figurative representational painting. You're not going abstract. Um, that's I that I, I, I like a little bit of everything in in art. Uh, yeah. I'm more of a photography guy, and you know, but I like pictures to be in focus. Yeah. Um, I don't like blurry movement in pictures. I, I think that's you know. Yeah. How would I go for? So yeah, I guess you could say that I like uh, representational stuff. Yeah, you like an edge. You like a story. You want you want exactly. you want those that narrative, which is exactly. Yeah, I mean, when I was in, you know, I went to graduate school at Yale in painting, and when uh, the photography department there was where it was at when I was there, because it was like all these young women who were. You know, they were in a group show called Another Girl, Another Planet, and they were just making, I mean, they were amazing. They were, like, way more mature than we were, like, my, me and my friends, and they were, you know, partying down there. They had a hot tub in the basement, and they were making these amazing pictures, and it just felt so raw and amazing, you know? Yep. And uh, that really, I think that was the first time that photography really hit me, you know, to where I felt like, oh, this is, this, you know, this is another level here. Yep, yep. It, it's exciting. I mean, I know obviously your, your relationship to photography is so tied to creative expression and, and music and these personalities, but I mean, are you, are you a big fan of the other side of, you know, just fine art, you know, what, you know, are there photographers specifically that you look at that you're really into what they're doing? Um, I, I don't really look at other photographers work. I, I look at, I know, I know who Ansel Adams was. I know who W. Gene Smith was. They were great. Uh, they did great work. I'm more of a photojournalist, photojournalism guy. So I like people and places and pictures that tell a story. Yeah. You know, I was looking at a lot of your photographs and I realized that there's quite a few of them that I've seen before and I didn't even know they were your photographs. You know what I mean? Because you, you're familiar with the artist sometimes you don't read the little copyright right, or right. you know underneath so um and i was thinking about when you're going to photograph these people in these situations are you approaching it in a way to where you're trying to get the essence of the person are you really interested visually or are you trying to capture the the feel or just the moment or who that person is do you know what i mean or is it a combination of both maybe yes to all of that yeah uh, but but mainly what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show them in their best light. Right. Uh, show them in a way that will make people be interested in them. Right. Uh, and, which and... is mostly fairly easy, but sometimes really difficult. When somebody doesn't have any discernible personality, <laughs> it's really hard to to get something out of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but the the advantage, I think, is a big part of it is that access, you know, of being around in moments outside, or at least I find those compelling, like that picture of um, Marcellus and Miles Davis. I mean, who gets to see that, you know, so there's I know I'm the only one that ever saw that. Yeah. So it tells a real story, you know, 
It, yeah. There's something kind of magical about that. So it's almost like, you know, if you were a landscape photographer, it's kind of like being in that, you know, on Mount Fuji watching the sunrise or something. You know what I mean? Like you're. Well, you're, I, I always say that uh, my whole life has been a series of moments where I was in the right place at the right time. Definitely. And, and, and I, a lot of it is because of the access that I've built for myself through hard work and many years of schmoozing people. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's the, the secret to creative success in a way is it's that I always tell students, you know, it, it's a combination of busting your butt, like really, really hard work and a little bit of luck of being the right place at the right time. But you're not going to get there if you don't do the work. Another big part of it in this end of the business is being um, being nice to the people I'm photographing, not right. putting out bad pictures, being yeah. known by the entire industry as somebody that takes pictures that are going to make them look good, not make them look bad. Right. Yeah. So you, you now, does that mean that you have to like pass the photos by the artists just to make sure they're cool? Uh, with it? There was a time when I used to do that until I, realized that they were not really looking for good or bad pictures. They were just trying to limit my, the amount of pictures that I had. Right. And then I just decided, you know, if they don't trust me, I don't want to shoot them. Right. And, and uh, that, that, uh, that lim eliminated a whole bunch of bands, but it made me feel better about myself. Right. So, um, you know, you've photographed a lot of different genres basically. And, and unlike, I mean, I don't, I like folk. Well, I don't know that I listen to that much folk. I mean, my dad was really into Dylan and listened to a lot of that stuff. Um, I, but I do, I did grow up loving the blues and I got into Skip James and, you know, Robert Johnson and, and, you know, the, the deep, the deep cuts basically. And to me, that really feels like folk, you know, and then I love bluegrass, like old flat scrugs and stuff like that. And all yep. the way through Bob Wills into jazz and all that stuff. And, but I think I've, I really do love the instrumental tracks as well. I love those bands, you know, and you did photograph yep. a lot of jazz guys too. Um, you know, it's, it's well, I, just, I figured out, I figured out really early in life that, or in my career that I wasn't going to, survive if I just picked one genre of music. Right. And I, I started, I had a, a situation here in Chicago with a, the biggest promoter in town who liked my work and basically said, if you give us pictures for our archives, you could come to all of our shows. And th that was most of the shows in Chicago. Yeah. And I went every night. There were, there were years in the 80s where I shot 300 bands in a year. That's crazy. All on film and, too, right? All on film. All on film. And I was shooting and paying for it all myself. Yeah, that's a lot. And, and hoping to make back enough money to make it worth continuing. Right. But I was going out. It, it, didn't, it didn't matter who was on stage. It could be a thrash metal band. It could be a folk band. It could be a comedian. Right. Uh, I was going to clubs and venues in Chicago every night just because somebody was playing there. Yeah. Not because it was somebody I liked. Right. You weren't just following the act. You were just going there to see what's next. I would go next. to the thrash band one night and the next week, the next night I'd hear about 
a comedian that was supposed to be really funny by the name of Robin Williams. Right. I've heard of it. And I just, I just showed up at his, at his gig and shot a bunch of pictures because I could. Yeah. You were there. And, and my, my list, my archive has over 4,400 names in it. I think at you, this point, you know, I, I don't think you've used it, but you could probably have a book that's just called I was there. <laughs> that's uh it's not a bad name right like not i was there yeah uh but it's it's pretty uh it's an amazing roster but the thing is uh, taking i'm sure there's special challenges to uh taking photographs in a setting where you're not controlling the light and it could be you know it, it can be very dynamic but that said what a great environment for taking portraits and photographs of people because there's so much energy and there's so much you know, it's a venues are so charged in that sense. Yep. Yep. But then you're still, you know, you're backstage too and taking other photos and seemingly much more quiet, intimate moments, which is a nice dynamic between those two worlds. Well, the, uh, one of the problems with shooting live concert shots is, is it, I have no control over what, it, what it looks like. Yeah. I do have some control. I can control where I stand so I could see where, you know, I could stand in a way that the lights will hit, back of the person's head in the right place. But for the most part, I'm, I'm privy to whatever, you know, whatever the, the lighting guy, whatever button he pushes. Right. Uh, Whereas if I'm doing a portrait, I could pick the location. I could pick the lighting. I could pick the pose. I could direct the artist, you know, to, you know, move your hand here, move your hand there. Um, Some people you don't have to direct. They just do great stuff. Um, do you prefer one way over the other as far as, you know, reacting to an environment as opposed to creating your environment? I like creating my environment. Oh, yeah. Well, like, then you've I been like in foreign that. territory for a while. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, It took a while in my career until I got to the point where uh, I was allowed to do this. You know, mostly it was just like, hey, we'll give you a photo pass. You go and shoot the show. Right. And I would take photo pass for any show that came to town. But after a while, I used to say, hey, you know, can I get them together for five minutes or can I get the guy together for five minutes at soundcheck or after soundcheck? And I would do a portrait. And those were much more rewarding to me. Yeah. Now, I, in dealing with and having that kind of access, you know, to where you're seeing kind of like, you know, the raw side of everything, whether it's the artists or, you know, the environment and all that stuff, like when the lights come on after the gig and you're like, Oh, this is where the last two hours happened. You know what I mean? Right. right. Like having that behind the scenes, do you, would you still get kind of um, nervous or kind of like anxious around certain, you know, musicians as far as like their stature or, you know, what you had to accomplish? I mean, I, I toured with the Rolling Stones. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Yeah. And I wasn't nervous with them. So, you know, I, there's, there's only one person that ever made me nervous and that was Emmy Lou Harris. Oh, wow. Really? Just so beautiful and talented. Yeah. That every time I'm in a room with her, I find it really difficult to talk to her. Some people have it, you know, Yeah, it's almost like a key that unlocks your nervousness. (laughs) Yeah. But it doesn't, doesn't affect my work. I still take great pictures of her, I think. Right. Yeah. No, but you—that's that flutter, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because uh, you know, in 
in speaking to a lot of artists and uh, you know i've played music and i've met a lot of people i think the more seasoned you get at it, it it's you you get disarmed by it and you can just go about your business of doing what you need to do you know they're just they're just people they really are and sometimes yeah. not the best people in the world uh, most of the time not the best people <laughs> but, but they're they tolerate me because I've learned how to not waste a lot of their time. Right. I, uh, my shoot, my photo shoots are usually really quick. Yeah. I do all the pre-production before they walk in the room and they walk in the room and sit down and three minutes later they're done and they're looking at me like, Oh, that was easy. Right. Uh, but when they walk in the room, they're like, okay, let's get this over with. Which is the worst thing, worst thing that any photographer could hear is, <laughs> okay, let's get this over with. Right. right. Are we done yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's going to be sure. a weird feeling, right? Because your, your creative process is so tied to an iconography of people, but your interactions with them is so fleeting. It's kind of like, you know, you're well, associated with those people in such a strong way. Because I read that you were like, oh, yeah, I'd, I photographed prints, but I was like, I didn't really, you know, I didn't want to meet or I didn't want to hang around them or whatever. It. I never yeah. met them. I shot them like 15 times, never met them. Yeah. I, well, the other thing is I don't want to, somebody that I admire, I don't want to find out that they're jerks. Uh, yeah, it kills it, right? So it's a lot better if I don't meet them. I mean, I, you know, like the Stones are great. I know they're great. Buddy Guy is great. I know he's great. Uh, those are the people I hang around with. Right. Uh, I, I just don't think that the people of today have the kind of personality that, that I, that I'm interested in and in talking to. I mean, I could have, I could have a three hour conversation with Keith Richards and never get bored. Right. But I can't see having a 15 minute conversation with Billy Eilish. Oh, right. I and wonder, I, and, you know, what would she talk about? Maybe she's brilliant. I mean, who knows? But well, I can, I can answer that question to some extent. I can give you a, a sort of case study of that phenomenon. I feel like in speaking with, you know, hundreds of artists and, you know, on this, generally people who are older have much more to say. They have more stories. They have they've more lived thoughts. They yeah. lived more. But I still think in speaking to young artists, there is a certain a value to understanding where they are at that moment and how they're feeling in the sort of passion of that moment. Do you know what sure. I mean? As opposed sure. to reflecting on it, like when you're 60 or 70 years old. And, you know, I think a good parallel to that too is, is creative work. Like my paintings now, I feel like, oh, I know so much more than I did when I was like 27 and just started showing, you know? Yep. But there's when I look at that work, I feel like, oh, yeah, it's kind of green. Like I was just coming out. But there's a certain energy and sort of blind ambition to it. That's there's a value to that. You know, I I agree. I agree. I've been I've just been very uh, disappointed by the newer artists that, you know, it's like. You talk to them and there's there all their answers are two word answers. And it's like, it's like all they want to do is go back to their room and play video games or, or text people on their phone. See, I, I totally agree with you in, in a sense. And then I'm of the age, you know, I'm in my late 40s where, and I have a kid who's a teenager. 
So I feel in between because I feel that a lot of times where like these young kids, but then I'm like, wait, that's just me getting old. I got to try to like understand because they're having a totally different relationship with the world as far as information and all that stuff. So, but yeah, no, I know what you mean is there's not, maybe there's not as deep of a well of linearity there to talk about. Yeah. I could have, I could, I could spend an entire day sitting and talking to buddy guy. Yeah. And yeah, but, never, never, um, never get tired of it and never lose, you know, never lose a, a track of thought. Right. Uh, but uh, younger people today, maybe they just don't want to talk to somebody. I mean, I know, I know for a fact that there are a lot of younger people that look at me and they look at my gray hair and there's no way that I could be relevant to what they are about. Well, in 2022 i would say that yeah well maybe it, it's a little uh, here's i got i have a story to illustrate that there right. about about 10 12 years ago i was shooting a band called pantera sure and i, I uh i went to the went in their dressing room i set up a couple lights i got ready to go and the road manager says well they'll be in in a minute uh so let me back up for a second. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw if, if you saw on my website or in, in the book material, I shot a picture in 1982 of Ozzy Osbourne holding, yeah. holding Randy Rhodes up in the air. Right. It's probably the most famous picture I ever took. And so I was waiting for Pantera. They showed up. They all stood in front of the camera. Not one guy in the band moved whatsoever. They just stood there like, I could have been shooting a picture of a picture. Right. And I took about four pictures and I said, come on guys, let's, let's do something here. Nothing, not, not a, they didn't say a word. And I, after four pictures, I just said, Hey, this isn't working. I'm, you know, we're done. And they walked away. Usually when I say this isn't working, they say, well, what can we do to make it work? They weren't These interested. Guys couldn't have cared less. Yeah. They weren't interested. So, uh, so here I am packing up my stuff and they walk over to the other side of the room and they're photographing with another photographer from Chicago, a guy that I knew. And he, and they're doing all the stuff that I wanted them to do. Uh. And he's, he's got long hair and he's got, you know, he's had a cigarette in one hand. He had a, a beer in the other hand. I don't know where, which hand held the camera, but you know, it, everything I wanted them to do, they were doing for him. And then I, I was watching out of the corner of my eye and he started talking to them and pointing at me. And so I just kept on packing up and then I got up to leave and I'm walking out the door and the guitar player walks up to me and he says, Hey dude, hold on a second. And I stopped and he said, you're the guy that shot the picture of Ozzy and Randy, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, if we would have known that we would have cooperated with you. <laughs> And my first thought was to slap him. Right. Because that's a really stupid thing to say. Yeah. But my second thought was to say, I'm old, I'm as old as his grandparents. And there's no way that I could be relevant in his world. Or at least that was his initial thought. And he and I became great friends for like three years after that until he until he was murdered. Yeah. But, you know, up to after that, anytime I ever wanted to photograph him, 
if I would ask him to stand on his head, he would have stood on his head. Right. But the initial perception is that I'm some old guy. Yeah, I mean, some that's just the case of people judging a book by a cover, you know, right. and not being generally interested in people. And so, but my know, war, my war is is always with publicists, right? And if I were a publicist and I was having me photograph their band, I would say to them like, "Hey, you should look at this guy's website. Right? He's done right. some pictures that you might have seen before. Do a little research." And I'll I'll tell you this: I I was once hired to shoot this kind of new band called the Dixie Chicks. Right. And I flew down to New Orleans and went over to the hotel. The road manager says, you know, jump on the bus with your stuff and we'll be out in a minute. And the girls walked out, they got on the bus, they knew who I was. Every one of them had looked at my website. They had all, they all talked about different pictures that they saw on my website that they admired. And we had a great relationship for five years after that. Yeah. All it takes is the little research or, or general interest in other people's creative output. But right. the thing is, is like, I think in your world of the people you're dealing with, there's a lot of people who are a little self-centered, dare I say. Is that really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... They take the, a little out of that, out of that equation. <laughs> right. Like they think they're God. So why would they bother with you, you know? Why would they bother with a mere mortal? Yeah, no, the smart people, like, they, they know the doormen, you know, they get to know the crew, they, they talk to the, the lighting people, you know, they, you know, you generally care about other people or, or ask some questions. And, and well, the, way, the way I really got started in this business was I made friends with all the, all the security guys yeah. in Chicago, and they all worked the same show, you know, all the different venues. So they just, after a while, I would give them prints every time I'd see them. And they knew me as, you know, this guy's not causing trouble. He's, you know, he does his job and he leaves and he, he gives us stuff and he's a nice guy. Yeah. So when, even when the band would say you can only shoot, you know, this much of the show, they would just look at me and say, oh, you can shoot whatever you want. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the past. Did you learn that a little bit from going to those Bolts games? Because, you know, that sort of access that you're granted is kind of gives you a different level of, the access yeah. is the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else that matters other than that. Right. And, and the access is, is based on uh, not just time, but location. Definitely. There are two different kinds of access. Well, uh, do, you want me to, do you want me to tell little stories? You bet. Explain this stuff? Listen, before this podcast, I figured... And, and, you know, looking at your work and thinking about you, I'm like, if you don't have a good story, I don't know who does. Oh, I hope you got like three hours because Listen, I, I can talk that long. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. I got nothing to do. Uh, me too. <laughs> I'm all ears. Uh, do you know, have you ever heard of a photographer by the name of Jim Marshall? Uh, I know the name, but I couldn't tell you the, the, the image. So Jim Marshall is, is uh, he passed away a couple of, a couple of years, five years ago, but. He was my idol and he was a San Francisco photographer. He took the famous picture of Johnny Cash giving the finger. Okay. And then everybody has seen, he took the, he was the last guy to ever photograph the Beatles at, at uh, uh, Candlestick Park in San Francisco as they were keeping the stage after the last show ever. And he's done a number of books. He's, you know, he's, uh, he, he was brilliant. Yeah. And uh, I got to meet him. 
and we got to be friends and we traded prints and got a bunch of his stuff on my wall in my house. And uh, he came to town once and he called me up and said, let's go to lunch. And uh, so we went to lunch, we sat down in fancy restaurant, waiters in white shirts and bow ties and ordered some food and he ordered a bottle of wine and I don't drink, so he drank the whole bottle. And he ordered a second bottle because I still don't drink. He drank the whole second bottle. And, uh, and all of a sudden he looks at me and he says, uh, do you put up with all the rules that the bands put on photographers? And I started to explain to him, uh, kind of have to, you know, if you want to get that access, you got to do what they say. Right. And he was pretty drunk at that time. And, we were the only ones in the restaurant. And all of a sudden he yells across the table at me. And I have to ask you, is it okay to swear on this thing? Of course, have at it. And he, and he <laughs> looks at me and he says, you're a fucking moron. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? And he said, when you, like, I don't know if you know how photographers are treated in the normal day-to-day -day business of the rock and roll world. I don't. Um, a, a normal photographer is only allowed to shoot the first three songs of a show or less, which comes out to be about 15 minutes or less. Why is that? Uh, because nobody wants to see anybody sweaty. Oh, I see. Which to me is the best part of the show. Yeah, of course. Uh, also, as people get older, they then make all the photographers shoot from the soundboard rather than from front of the stage. Yeah. <laughs> they don't Which want any they, vocals. Yeah, yeah. Absolute wrong place to shoot from for right. a number of reasons. So those are all the rules that up to that point I've been following because it was either that or you don't shoot. Right. So I tried to explain it to him, and he, his comment was, "Well, if you agree to their rules, they're not your pictures anymore. All you're That's doing true. is you're capturing what they want you to capture." Right. And he said. I would never do that. I would never, if I can't shoot the whole show, I don't leave the house. And I went home, it was a Saturday afternoon, laying on the couch watching college football. And I'm thinking about what he said. And I'm thinking, you know, he's right. And this was mid nineties. I'd already been shooting for 20 years. Right. Uh, revelation. It was a revelation. But he and didn't give you the code, did he, of how to do that? Well, he, that was the part I had to figure out, which, <laughs> which I figured out is impossible right. because the following Monday, I got up in the morning and usually on Monday mornings, I would call, I'd look in the newspaper, I'd pick out the shows I wanted to shoot that week and I'd call the publicists. And I started calling publicists Monday morning and I said, hey, you know, I want to shoot your band. They're coming to town on Wednesday night. Uh, but there's a little problem. I want to be able to shoot the whole show. And I did that for about a month and I lost 95% of my business. <laughs> no one wanted to let it happen. No one wanted to let it happen. And it never came back. It never came back. And, and, you know, this is now going on 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and I could tell you in, in the mid to late eighties, and in mid nineties, I was shooting 300 bands a year. Uh, the year before the pandemic, I shot seven bands. It really, uh, I, 
It hurt business. I, His advice did not help business. Well, it, it did help business because the seven bands that I shot, I got really great pictures. Oh, I see. So your quality went, your quantity went down, but the quality, quality went, went up. And, uh, and because of that, I became more known as a guy that takes really great pictures. So it never, it never came back. I, I, I was just, I just had lunch yesterday with a bunch of guys, one of whom ran, runs to this day, the biggest venue in the city of Chicago, the big, you know, ginormo hockey arena yeah, uh, in the suburbs. And I used to see him once a week and I haven't seen him in four years. And he looked at me like, man, I, I didn't think you were still doing this. And I said, well, I'm really not. I'm doing it occasionally, but I I would rather go and shoot some little unknown band that's playing in a little club than go out to your place and pay to park and then not even be not even given a photo pass. Right. Be herded into the area that we shoot from by a bunch of security guys and allowed to shoot three songs and then have somebody come up, put their hand in front of my camera and say, now you have to leave. And not just leave the area, but leave the building. Yeah, that's rough. Because God forbid I would take pictures during the fifth song. <laughs> they could be kind enough just to confiscate the camera and let you enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't give up my camera. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, so I wouldn't put my camera in the trunk of my car. Yeah. I, you know, so I, you know, they're number one, every photographer in America is getting the same picture. They're also shooting the most boring part of the show. And they're not getting the most exciting part of the show. They're all, if it's a band, they're almost never getting a picture of two guys together. Right. Like the, the example I always use is a friend of mine got an assignment once to photograph the Rolling Stones for Mojo Magazine, big English rock magazine. Yeah. And he called me up. He said, well, you've toured with them. You know, what, what, what can I expect? And I said, well, it was his first assignment ever for Mojo. And I said, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I would do. I would turn down the assignment. And he, he said, what do you mean? Dropped, he dropped his glass. <laughs> I, I said, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go there. You're going to be allowed to shoot three songs. You're either going to be on Mick's side of the stage or on Keith's side of the stage. So no matter what you do, you're only going to get one of those guys. So what's going to happen when you send the pictures to Mojo? What if you're on Keith's side of the stage and you don't have any pictures of Mick Jagger? Or what if you're on Mick's side of the stage and you don't have any pictures of Keith? Uh, are they ever going to hire you again? And he went and did the assignment because he couldn't turn it down. How and could he? Was, you? He was on Keith's side of the stage and he didn't get any pictures of Mick and they've never hired him again. Yeah, but it'd be so hard to turn that down, I would imagine, right? It would I, take to a me, great amount be, of foresight. To me, it would be easy to turn it down. But I've been turning it down for years. But that's the thing. For, but you said for a long time you didn't do that. You did play by the rules. I did. And it was just because I, you went out to eat with your, with your mentor, your idol. Exactly. Right? That and you got the two bottle truth. Right. 
but I, but I, over the pandemic, I spent a lot of time in my file room scanning all my old archives. Yeah. And I would, I did it alphabetically and I would come across a band that I had shot three songs of and I'd look at the pictures and they were all the same. Yeah. Because during those three songs, I was just trying to shoot as many pictures as I could. And they were all basically boring pictures. They sell because in those days, that was the only, those were the only pictures available. Right. And they That's were the technically name, right? good. They yeah. were technically fine. Uh, but uh, I had I had a I had a client for a while that is actually the name of the client is printed on the microphone right in front of you for sure and is in the no pun intended yeah <laughs> and um, part of their deal is they would give any endorser whatever they needed in the way of microphones for their tours in return for me being allowed to shoot the whole show right. Because they needed pictures of if a guy switched microphones during the show, they needed a picture of him playing and singing into both of the microphones. Yeah. Uh, and there was a band that they sent me out to shoot. They were one of those new bands. This is about four years ago. They're called Young the Giant. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I don't know them. I had no idea who they were. That I, I went to the venue. I thought that maybe they were the opening act. And I got there and found out the show was sold out. And I couldn't talk to them before the show because they're having a meeting to determine what song they were going to play on Saturday Night Live that week. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never even heard of these guys. So the road manager comes out and gives me a pass. And we're standing backstage. And he hands me a pass and it says, first three, first three songs only. And I said, well, you know, we got to change this because I know that the singer uses a different microphone for the encores. And that's the one they want pictures of. And he said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. That's what everybody does. He could only shoot three songs. And there was a guy standing next to us. No idea who he was, just some young guy. And he turns to the road manager and he says, why is it that we only let people shoot the first three songs? And the road manager looks at him and says, well, it's because what everybody else does. And the guy says, well, the end of the show is the best part of the show. And it turned out it was the singer of the band. <laughs> and so, so we made arrangements for me to shoot the whole show. I shot the show. I sent a bunch of JPEGs to their manager in New York the next morning. Immediately called me up. He said, how'd you get these pictures? And I said, all those pictures were taken during the encore. And he says, well, and he says, and I quote, why do we only let people shoot the first three songs? And I said, you tell me. And he says, well, you guys make a ton of money off of us. And if we limit what you can shoot, you can't make as much money off of us. And I said, how much do you think I get paid for, for pictures? And he said, I don't know, probably a lot. And I said, well, are you sitting at your computer right now? And he said, yeah. And I said, I'm going to send you my latest sales report from my agent. And I emailed it to him. And he, a minute later, he says, okay, I got it. I said, open it up and go to the last column, because that's how much I make for each picture. 
And all I heard from the other end of the phone was silence. And then all I heard was, oh my fucking God. <laughs> and he said, you get paid this little per picture? And I said, yeah, but I, if you look in the sales report, they sell 500 pictures of mine every month. That's up. So, so I said to him, okay, here's, here's what I want you to do. This was your big lesson. Uh, the next time the band comes to town, the next time they go out on tour, I want to shoot the whole show. And I want to do a photo shoot with them before they go on stage. So it shouldn't be a problem. And then I said, okay, and here's one more thing. Next time they go on tour, I want you to let every photographer in the United States shoot the whole show. And there was dead silence at the other end of the line for about two minutes. And then he says, okay, I think we could do that. And their next tour, they let everybody shoot the whole show. And most photographers that were there when I was at the show in Chicago had never shot the whole show of a show. I had no idea that they had no idea what to do with themselves. Yeah. You know, and the deal is you don't shoot everything that moves. You wait for things to happen. Right. And the road manager came out before the show and said, Hey, you guys are all allowed to shoot the whole show tonight. And, and points to me and says, it's all because of him. <laughs> and so now most photographers in Chicago know if I'm there, I'm shooting the whole show and they understand why I insist on it. And they want to, they want to do what I do. So they ask me, how do you make that happen? Right. And I say, most likely you don't make it happen. But it, when you do make it happen, it'll be really satisfying. Yeah. It, it's funny that that rule just existed out of vanity. Well, it's there are a number of there are a number of uh, examples of why the rule started. I've heard two different stories. One was that Rod Stewart, uh, all of his hair was spiked up on top of his head, and after the third song, it had all fallen, <laughs> and he didn't want anybody shooting it when it wasn't looking perfect. Right. Uh, that I heard from Rod's publicist from back in the 70s. Uh, the other one I heard from Bruce Springsteen's road manager, that he was playing a show at Madison Square Garden and there were a hundred photographers in the photo pit. And most of them were paparazzi type guys yeah. who don't know how to shoot pictures. Right. So they put a flash on their camera. And so Bruce came out off the stage at intermission went up to his road manager and said, George, I can't even concentrate on playing because all there are flashes going off in my face the whole time. You got to fix this for tomorrow night. And George had two paths. He could have, he could have taken one of two paths. One of them would have been really great. One of them ruined photography forever. <laughs> he could have said, road. Well, he could have said, okay, nobody can use a flash. I would have loved that because it would have eliminated like all the people that didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And, or, or he could have said, you could only shoot for 15 minutes and then you have to leave, which is what he did. 
And within three years of that, everybody was saying the same thing. Yeah. And it was over. It was done. Well, it's funny now, too, because everyone has, uh, if you go to a show, everyone has a camera out. Everybody yeah. in the audience is shooting the whole show from yeah. start to finish. It's crazy. And, and you know, the, the artists will say, everyone turn your flashlights on now. And it's kind of like the putting the lighters up in the air, you know. Exactly. But well, everyone's there, filming I, it. I once photographed an artist that sold flashlights for $3 at the merch stand. And it, everybody knew he was going to ask them all to put their, fla their flashlights right. up. So they, he sold, he made a fortune. Oh, I was going to say, it's a good marketing move. <laughs> yep, yep. Get him a uh, crowd participation. Exactly. But well, I've always, always laughed when somebody says you have to leave after three songs and I turn around and there's like 500 people with their right. phones in the air. Yeah, and it's, dude, they're probably some of that video is unflattering. I mean, you can zoom in. It's all high definition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what's even, what's even weirder, there's a famous story. I wish I would have been there that night. I would have applauded. But uh, Peter Frampton about six years ago was playing the show. He, he was, you know, ready, like, on his downward spiral of his career. Yeah, yeah. He was playing in a thousand-seat venue, and there was a guy in the front row with his girlfriend, and they were both shooting pictures the whole show. And about three-quarters of the way through the show, he uh, stopped after one song, and he turns to the guy and says, hey, can I see the pictures you're getting? <laughs> and the guy stood up and walked to the front and handed him his camera, or his phone. And Peter looked at a couple pictures and just turned to the side and whipped the phone against a brick wall Oh, <laughs> and broke it into like a thousand pieces Yikes! and said, now sit down and watch the rest of the show. Oh man. Uh, there's probably some, some personal stuff on there. He needed. <laughs> well, he probably had to pay for the phone, but right. I, you know, it would have been worth it for me to pay for the phone to be able to do that. Oh yeah. We've all had that experience in day-to-day -day life. We just want to take someone's phone and skip it on the ocean. Like a, Oh yeah. Every, like every skipping day. Rock. I mean, I want to do it with my own. I'm gonna... <laughs> I, uh, my goal in life is to not have to take my phone when I leave the house. Yeah. But unfortunately my vaccination card is on it. Oh yeah. You can't so do I anything. Have to take it everywhere. I know we've, we've locked ourselves in a technological prison. Exactly. It's like you can't go back from it now. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's just, it's part of our. Well, some of it's good. I mean, I, I, I greatly enjoy the idea of digital photography. Yeah. I don't enjoy any more going into dark room and smelling like chemicals for two days. And, right. Uh, you know, and the cost of it is exorbitant. Right. Compared to shoot a bunch of pictures, download them into your computer, work on them delete the card, put it back in your camera and you're ready to go again. Yeah. Yeah. It's convenient. And it's a, you know, it's, it's like everything with technology, like, you know, even creating music, you can do any, I remember when we had to go pay some, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh and okay. uh, the high school band I was in, we wanted to do a demo tape, you know, at the pay studio to do it. We just paid these two guys. I don't know. They didn't know what they were doing. Like now looking back, you know, I'm like, these two guys like ripped us off paid hundreds of dollars and we got two songs yeah. on a tape yeah. but you had to you can do it now my son's over there and he's got everything known to me i mean he could just rip out an album in two days all he's got <laughs> sounds pretty he's good is, is pro tools light on his laptop and he, he's you're good and a microphone and a little a little input machine right and ready to rock yeah it's it's great and at the same it's you know it's 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 always it evens out you know but now there's just so much stuff out there that it's 
you know, a symphony of, of just content and data and images and sounds that it's hard to even navigate at all, you know? Exactly. That's exactly. why a lot of people just, like you're saying, like young people just sit there like pods because they've just been, you know, everything's just been washing over them their whole life. Yeah. Well, the, the, the craziest part of it is that the, the entry level point is, is much lower yeah. than it was in the old days. I mean, right. you, I, at, there was one point where I, I decided I needed like a spare camera just to keep around just in case. Yeah. And I went to Best Buy and I bought a little Nikon for $300. And it had a zoom lens on it. It was a fast lens. And I shot a lot with it. And you can't tell the difference in the quality between that and my $3,000 cameras. Oh, man. You just saved my life. Can you tell me the name? <laughs> my son, he's uh, he's in high school. He goes to Sinatra and he's in film. Okay. And he wants to buy a camera that's like crazy expensive. I was like, there's got to be something comparable at this stage right. where we don't Hang have on. to. I'm not leaving. But I'm just walking over here. Yeah, yeah. I need um, this. I need the info on this one. Because <laughs> nowadays it's, it's there like it is. That. Ah, there it is. It's a Nikon D3200. D3200. Right. I'm guessing they don't make this anymore, but they probably make a comparable one. Right, right. Someone will tell like you what. hundred dollars. It shoots high def video too. Oh, really? Yeah. You just saved my uh, my life <laughs> and my wallet. Thank you. No, but it's yeah. It's the, like only that. Thing, the only thing. Could... There, there is a difference between that and a five thousand dollar camera. Uh, in in that with a five thousand dollar camera, I could shoot twenty pictures in a row. Right. This one, I could shoot like five in a row. Yeah, I don't think but that's really the only difference. <laughs> there's a there's a difference between a Maserati and my SUV, but you know, right, I really exactly. have to go 200 Ford, miles per hour down the drop Ford off my Focus. kid. <laughs> my Ford Focus gets me places. Right, oh, right. Oh. Doesn't always have to be top of the line, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, well, one thing I wanted to ask too is, you know, you talked about access and all that stuff, and and you know being nice to people you know generally gets i tell people all that like students all the time like when you get out there and you speak to galleries or speak to people be nice no one wants to work with a jerk you know it's like this fallacy of the creative you know curmudgeon who's like oh he's so and you know there's they're so intriguing because they're dark or whatever no one wants to deal with that well but, um, I, was talking, I was talking about jim marshall he was yeah. he was the biggest curmudgeon you'd ever want <laughs> in your life and he, he found it impossible to get work. Yeah. Even though he was great at what he did. Right. But Imagine I, how much, if he were a super nice guy, how much more, you know what I mean? If, like, he, if he heard me saying he was actually really a nice guy, he'd be rolling over in his grave right now. Right. He didn't want that. No, he, he wanted to be a curmudgeon. Well, it was cool but, back then. Right? But I, I'll tell you this. When I was starting out, I used to go to New York regularly and I'd go and call on publicists. And just had a portfolio and I'd show it to them. Now you just have a website and right. just send them a link. Yeah. But I remember going to New York once and I really wanted to see this one publicist from AM Records. And uh, I walk in there with my publicist. I had an appointment at 10 o'clock in the morning. And his secretary said, Hey, I'm really sorry. We didn't know how to get a hold of you, but he had a dental emergency and he had to, had to leave. And I'm thinking, this is my whole reason for going to New York. Right. And I'm not going to see the guy. And then she said to me, well, can I look at your portfolio? 
And she was kind of cute and she was nice. And I said, sure, no problem. I haven't, you know, well, I'm going to go down the street and get a bagel and cream cheese, you know? I'm, yeah. Uh, so she looked at my portfolio and she complimented me on a bunch of stuff. And that was the end of it. I left and I found somebody else to go and see. A couple of years later, she was the head of publicity for Warner Brothers Records. And she now runs a publicity company that among their clients is Madonna. There you go. And, you know, she used to give me work regularly because, because I stayed and showed her my portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. You never know those people you meet, you know, who, where they're going to go or who, that's why it's good to be, you know, a nice person who's good to work with because you never, I mean, I've met people early on curating little group shows and stuff. Later on, you find out they're curating in a museum, you know what I mean? Or they're, They're doing a collection and stuff. And, and, you know, you always want to be, you know, what you put out there generally will come back. But I mean, but you photograph people like Miles Davis, who is infamous for just being a jerk, you know, I mean, he, he was, but so the the story behind that picture of him and Winton. Yeah. um, So I was down in New Orleans for jazz fest and I went to shoot this show. It was the weirdest show ever. It was at night in an arena or like a theater. Mm-hmm. It wasn't part of Jazz Fest, but it was Miles Davis opening for Wynton Marcellus, which <laughs> is really weird. Well, it was weird because it was Wynton's hometown. So, you know, he wanted to be the headliner and Miles was not happy about that. I can imagine. So at that point, they were both on Columbia Records and the publicist from Columbia was down there. And, uh, so I shot Miles on stage and House Lights came up and my friend Arthur, the publicist, came out and said, grab your stuff and follow me. I had no idea what was going on. And uh, so we go backstage and there's a door. And he opens up the door and pushes me into a little room and says, don't leave. And closes the door behind him. And I'm standing in a room with Miles Davis. <laughs> was looking at me and I'm looking at him. Neither one of us is saying much. And then he turns to me and he says, you know, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for Winton. Meaning he, he was really pissed off that he was the opening act and that every, all the publicity was going toward Winton, right. who was the new kid on the block. And I started explaining to him like, dude, you're God. Yeah. You know, I'd go anywhere to photograph you. Right. And right as I started explaining to him, the door opened up and Arthur pushed Winton in the room and turned to me and said, just keep on shooting until one of them leaves. <laughs> and, and I just shot like crazy. And they yeah. were, they really didn't like each other. They kept on, you know, like, but they respected each other. And I, as far as I know, I'm the only one that has pictures of the two of them together ever. That's crazy. Man, that, I guess maybe it was good to be behind the lens on that one because there was probably kind of a charged environment. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it was, you know, it it was, uh, it was damned exciting. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. And pretty raw. I mean, I didn't, I'm shocked because to be totally honest, I would, in judging by all the videos I've seen of, Winton and thinking about him and his respect for the medium, 
that he would never want to headline over Miles Davis, but maybe well, clearly I'm wrong. I think his ego got the best of him. But, you know, this is a guy who fired his brother from his band because he wouldn't wear a three-piece suit on stage. I did not know that. Yeah, and yeah, Miles, but brothers, I mean, you know, I'd fire my brother for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, Miles would wear leather pants and, you know. Oh, yeah. And Witten was really into the fact that if you respect jazz, you have to be a jazz man. Yeah, but Miles is, that's why. Miles is why. Miles can do whatever he wants because he was that guy. Yeah, but Witten gave a lot of interviews talking about how he thought Miles was kind of a clown. Oh, boy. Yeah, he, Witten has a huge ego himself. The funny part of that is, too, is I feel like Winton's music, I mean, he is basically, from my perspective, like he's redoing the early part of, like he's just fetishizing a certain earlier part of jazz where Miles was just breaking down doors. You know what I mean? He was experiment. Yeah, he was, I mean, he opened up so much for music in general. And Winton's just going back. Never do. Yeah. You know, I mean, Winton would never play like that, discordant jazz stuff that miles was playing on bitches brew yeah like on the corner it's like one yeah. beat the whole record you know it's... yeah miles miles played whatever he wanted to play and he was great at it yeah he had a real cavalier you know yeah it's just a genius and i mean the, the beauty of it is that you know that out stuff like when it's pushing doors and into the funk confusion and stuff was so you know just taking a left turn and going into new territory and then you listen to, you know, Birth of the Cool, and it's still today, it still still sounds just as fresh as it did back yeah, then. Well, I imagine that it did back absolutely. then. I mean, yeah. and that was groundbreaking, too, what he was doing. You know, like the Birth of the Cool stuff. If people are like, this is, you know, that West Coast, it's too smooth. It's, you know. Well, the thing that was great about Miles is that you never knew when you put on an album what you were going to get. Right. You knew it was going to be great. You just didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, that must have been exciting. I have like, you know, I was in a, I was a jazz DJ in college and um, I really got deep into it. And, um, you know, I really feel jealous of anyone who got the sort of, you know, move through that era and see that in real time, you know, and I've had a couple friends. I've interviewed Chris Martin, who's a painter here in New York City, and he would go see Herbie Hancock live in the thrust days, you know, and like right, the, right. when is in the fusion days, man, I would give a pinky to go see those shows. Well, one, one of the advantages that I had was, you know, once again, this promoter promoted, he promoted Return to Forever. Yeah. Chick he Korea. promoted, you know, Herbie doing solo shows where, where he had the, the puppets, the weird. Oh, yeah. The rocket, the, the rocket era. era. Yeah. yeah. And I would just, I didn't have to call ahead. All I had to do was just get in my car and go down there. And sometimes I didn't even know what I was shooting. <laughs> You know, I just knew that there was a show that night and I had to get pictures of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I photographed Chick Corea, who I found out later doesn't let anybody shoot pictures of him. Oh, really? I didn't know that. But I just walked in and nobody stopped me. And I walked up to the front and shot for a while. Yeah. You know, That's and now cool. Chick passed away and everybody wants my pictures. Yeah. Because there were I didn't her- know that. He wasn't into people photographing him. No. Uh, uh, there, there's so many people that I shot that that I was the only I, when if you look on Getty Images and you look at some of the people that I've shot, I'm the only person that shot them. Yeah, again, I A was lot there. Of that obscure, like obscure country guys, you know. Yeah, stuff like that. 
That's pretty cool. And I guess I'm sure there's certain circumstances where you didn't even really know that that was the case. Oh, I had no idea. I had yeah. no idea at times. I mean, I, I tried to study. Every once in a while, I'd make major, huge mistakes. Yeah. I went to a venue once to shoot. Uh, do you know who Tom Scott was? No, I don't. He was a saxophone player that played in the Saturday Night Live band. Oh, okay. And they had a band called Tom Scott and the LA Express. And they were kind of a smooth jazz type of band. Right. And Saturday Night Live was really big in those days. So I went to shoot him at this little venue. And the opening act was this guy, this band called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Never heard of them. Uh, I'd never heard of them. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they really sucked. Oh, really? They weren't, they yeah. weren't there yet. And <laughs> I decided, I made a decision at that point not to shoot any pictures of them because there's no way they were ever going to make it because that's how bad they were. Listen, no one bats a thousand. And I, I remember standing in the back of the room with a couple of the waitresses and we were just talking about like, man, these guys better just go back to wherever they came from and like sell their instruments and go and get a job at 7-Eleven because they're never going to make it. But then the next time he came to town, he was a big star already. And I, over the course of his career, I shot him 25 times. Wow. Including, so he, you know, doing portraits of him and, you know, and, and he was a good friend. Oh, did you never, tell him the story? No, I never told him the story. Oh, yeah, you didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to tell. I didn't want to take a chance. Right. But I, yeah. uh, you know, the first time, like, man, this guy sucks. Right. Well, you know, people turn it around. <laughs> well, you know, I also had to think about every, every time I pick up a camera, it was costing me money. That's true. Uh, you know, it was like, I, I shoot, I shot in those days. Uh, I had three cameras. I shot black and white, which I had to pay for the film. I had to pay for the chemicals to develop it, the paper to make the proofs make a bunch of prints, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I'd shoot color transparency film slides, Yeah. which I would shoot. If I shot a roll of film, it was 20 bucks for the film and the processing. If I shot 10 rolls of film during a concert, it was a lot of money. Right. And I had to pretty much be confident that I was going to be able, be able to at least make that back. Yeah which wasn't always the case. There were certain bands I really liked. There was a band from New Jersey called Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Springsteen produced their first album, and I thought they were great. And I must have shot 100 rolls of film of them. Yeah. And I don't think I ever saw the picture. <laughs> well, it's tough because you had to basically, not only, if you think about film, just, you know, my dad always used to have those little cameras you would buy and, Right. You know, like roll the thing. And basically you're just shooting and hoping like it was kind of like a crapshoot when you get it developed and you go there and you like hope it came out. You know, you would do a certain amount of editing before you're taking the photo just because, you know, you're, you're trying to you only have so many. But you're kind of like conceptually editing out, you know, people that you want to shoot even before. It's it's like a choice. You know, what I well, mean? I conceptually edit out how much I'm going to shoot. Right. You know, like I will, even in those days, I would go and shoot anybody. And, but I would go and shoot a roll of black and white and a roll of color. 
right. as opposed to back in the 80s during the hair metal era, I was shooting, I was going and shooting Night Ranger and shooting 10 rolls of color and five rolls of black and white. Yeah, they should be so lucky. <laughs> well, you know, I still, I saw those guys about a month ago and three of them are still in the band. And oh, really? They're still doing it. They're in their 50s and one of, the lead singer's son is now the road manager. Which makes Impressive. me feel old, but they're, they're still they're they're nice guys, but yeah. You know, but I made I made a lot of money off of them in those days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the one thing about digital. It's really great. Is it? I don't have to think about it at all. I can just shoot. Yeah. It's editing after, not before, which is a little rather, better because you can see I'd, it. I'd rather not shoot two hundred pictures because I'm going to eliminate one hundred and fifty of them. Right. I'd rather shoot 50 and have them all be good. But, you know, at least it doesn't cost me anything. Right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're playing with house money a little bit. Well, unless you, well, you probably spend a lot of money on hard drives. <laughs> hard drives are cheap these days. That's true. Yeah. You can buy a four terabyte hard drive for like a hundred bucks. I know. It's pretty great. It wasn't like that five years ago. I got six of them lined up next yeah. to my computer. It's, it's good. You know, um, one other thing I want to ask you, too, is about, you know, of, of course, these these, you know, famous musicians, these big bands and big personalities, people gravitate towards that. But, you know, I have a personal relationship with Chicago because a lot of my friends from high school and growing up in Pittsburgh moved there to play music. But it was all in the sort of independent scene. And Chicago has such a fertile avant-garde kind of, you know, underground music scene, which is really great you know unlike anywhere else in in the country and i wonder if like if you dip into that at all because you know you've got record labels like touch and go and you know thrill jockey and all these great kind of like independent record labels and you know we the band i was in recorded our second record at electrical audio with steve albini well at steve albini's studio with bob weston and you know you hear the stories about the people who come through there and you know, I, could, this... I could look out the front window of my house and see electrical audio. Oh, there you go. So I live right around there. the corner. Nice. Uh, but I have a really weird relationship with Chicago. Back in the back in the eighties, I shot back when Liz Fair and yeah. Material Issue and uh, Urge Overkill. Urge Overkill. Uh, those guys would all come over to my house pretty regularly, and I'd do photo shoots with them. Yeah. And they were all my friends. Smashing Pumpkins. Day. Uh, or is that after? That's no, later. that was right after that. But that, that's when people always ask me, like, is there anybody that you don't like? And I always, there's only one guy that I don't get along with. Billy Corgan. Yeah. Yeah. I can uh, see that. But uh, the problem with Chicago is there were all these really great bands, but there was no infrastructure. Right. There were, there were no really great lawyers here. There were no really great managers uh, the people, the record companies like Touch and Go and you know, places like that were great, but they didn't have the reach. Oh, yeah. It's a if DIY, they got, like, right? I remember Liz Fair uh, signed with Matador Records. Yeah. And she was on the cover of Rolling Stone and they ran out of, they ran out of CDs. <laughs> like they didn't have any more to send out to stores. Yeah. You know, and I was I was a big part of the music scene here in those days, but you know, I uh, I was not 
I was not hip enough to be hanging out with the touch and go people. Right. Albini, Albini loves me. Oh, he really? Calls, he calls me fairly regularly. Like I could really, I could pick up my camera bag and I walk to the end of the block. I turn right. I go one block and I'm at a studio. That guy's a that guy's a, nat, a national treasure, if you ask me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But he uh, he hates being photographed. Well, so some magazine in London did an article about him once, and he recommended that I shoot him. Yeah. So I shot a bunch of pictures of him at the board and in his microphone room, and you know, around the studio, and uh, and now he, anytime he does an interview with somebody, he just sends the magazine to me. And says, get pictures from this guy. He's got great pictures. That's cool. That's a badge of honor. I mean, not that you need it, but that's a pretty cool badge of honor. I mean, yeah. Steve, he, he's so altruistic to the integrity of making music that it's, of, it's pretty of impressive. recording music. Yes, yeah. Uh, of, of doing it in a way that, um, I mean, he once said that if Page and Plant come to him, he'll charge him a million dollars to make a record. But if a band walks in the door and all I can pay him is a six pack of beer, he'll do it for a six pack of beer. Yeah. And he, it's cool. true. He will do that. Yeah. I feel like, I, I don't know if it's the case, but I feel like he has to like it though, or has to feel like there's some sort of entry point maybe. He seems to pick, I mean, you know, he did Nirvana. He did, he called me up once and he said, you got to come over here right away. Uh, Iggy and the Stooges are here. <laughs> And I went over and spent the whole afternoon taking pictures of Iggy and the Stooges That's uh, fun. recording in his studio. So I don't think he would record Britney Spears. Right. That's true. But in, the, in some kind of weird, perverse way, I think maybe he would want to do that. Right. I'll tell you one thing. It'd be the best record she ever recorded. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> be some fat drums on that record. But she'd probably walk out after the second day. Good point. Unless you're a fan of coffee, because he is a coffee aficionado, and I myself <laughs> have, have a, a, an a, you know affinity for coffee. So that was something that always yeah. impressed me when I was there, and he was talking, showing his espresso machines and how much care that he gave it. You know, it was kind of, yeah. it was pretty cool. He also never leaves his house. I could see that too. I, I have a feeling that he just, you know, I once, I, I used to run a series of seminars down at the cultural center mm-hmm. on music business practices. And I wanted him to speak at one of them. And I called him up and he says, well, I'll do it for you, but you got to pull up right in front of my front door. And I'm going to walk out of my house and get in your car. We're going to go down to the cultural center. And then you got to do the same thing in reverse at the end of the night. <laughs> no detours. And he was great. He, he, he spoke very well. The crowd loved him. It was standing room only. Brought him back to his house. I never saw him outside of his house again. <laughs> a rare in the wild sighting and he lives right above the studio so right. he doesn't have to commute or anything i mean that's kind of like speaking of no pun intended that sounds like nirvana right just being yeah, able yeah. to to do that all the, and the beauty of it is you're always getting different people coming in so it's even though you have a consistency and he's very you know specific about the studio you're constantly meeting new people and hearing new sounds and True, but I, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I, I, during the pandemic, everybody was ooing and eyeing about, you know, how hard it is to work from home. Yeah. I've been working from home for 30 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, but my secret to my success of working for, from home is that I leave every day at lunch and go out to eat. Yeah. Or dinner, one of the two. 
or breakfast. I, I'll, I'll go out just to have human contact with somebody. Right. right. Yeah, you, you know, it, it's not healthy to be in there all the time with you. No, I, I spent a lot of time in front of my scanners and computers during the pandemic. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny talking to a lot of artists every week throughout the pandemic. And, you know, the thing about artists is for the most part, we're pretty comfortable being in a room by ourselves for days on. You know what I mean? It's almost like what we want is to not have to deal with that other crap and just sit there and make all the time, you know? Right. Right. So it's probably an easier adaptation for creative people or artists because we're sort of used to working alone and, just being in a room, you know? Yeah, but for me, we're, uh, when I'm working, I'm working in a crowd. That's right, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's very, I try to get people to come over to my house to, sh- to photograph. And it, it does happen occasionally, but mostly I have to go to them. Right. So I got to carry lights and backdrop and, you know, cameras and all that stuff to a venue park and lug it all in and set it up and shoot and then do the same thing in reverse. But, uh, but I, I enjoy, I enjoy sitting home alone all day working in my, on my computers. Yeah, no, it's, it can be very uh, sort of like, uh, you know, conducive to thinking about work and, you know, meditative, but here's a question too. Since your work is so engaged with other humans, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, or some, or semi-humans. Exactly. Let's we'll we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. So, since your work is so engaged with that iconography, that kind of image, do you enjoy the occasional vacation on a beach or somewhere away from people, or do you like to travel? And will you photograph a sunset, or you know, or is that is work is this thing that's what you do? And then, well, first of all, I've never photographed the sunset. Never? Second of all, believe it or not, I've never been on a vacation in my adult life. Really? Uh, when I was a kid, my parents used to put us all in the station wagon and take us to Florida every once in a while. But I've never been on a vacation. And everybody says, well, you travel all the time. But all I see is the inside of a hotel room, the inside of a bus, and the inside of a venue. But you love what you do. Yeah, yeah. I actually need a love touring with bands, you know, better than shooting them here. Because there's something about waking up in a hotel room and being able to go out and get breakfast and, you know, edit at the desk in the, you know, in front of the window and look out at whatever city I'm in. But I never get to go to museums. I never get to explore because by the time I'm done editing, uh, it's ready to get on the bus and go into the next show. Now, do you ever, you know, feel a little bit like, oh, well, you know, I'm in LA. It'd be cool to go see LACMA or, you know, it'd be nice to go to Venice Beach or something. Not to Venice Beach. I have no interest in that. But I would like to go to a museum every once in a while. But then it becomes, when you're, when you're a photographer on a tour, especially a big tour, you're on call 24-7. Oh, you got to be available. Oh, <clears throat> With cell phones, it makes it easier, but still, what if I went out to Venice Beach and I just got there and was dipping my toes in the sand and the phone rang and uh, somebody said, hey, Mick wants to see you in 15 minutes. Right. And you're an hour away. (laughs) You know, or Mick's doing an interview and you need somebody to take pictures, you know. 
So you really do just hang out by the hotel in the hotel room. You kind of have to stay local. It's a 24 seven job. Yeah. God, it's like, it's, you know, it's probably not dissimilar to actors because, you know, when they're on set, they're only acting here. You know, there's bursts of acting for the most part. They're just in the, you know, trailer just sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting, you know, and you go out and you yeah, go out for a little bit down the block to the coffee shop because yeah. what if, if somebody needs them, the whole crew is waiting for them. Yeah. And for the actors, people recognize them as pain in the yep, ass. Yep. Everyone wants your autograph or whatever, you know, did, and you know, I was thinking about it when you mentioned that last, your, your um, mentor, what was his name? Paul, Jim Marshall. Oh, sorry. Jim Marshall. The last uh, concert that he photographed did a candlestick with the Beatles. Did you watch that documentary? No, I haven't watched it yet. Are you interested in it? I'm I'm a Stones fan. I'm not a Beatles fan. Oh, I see. Not at all. When I grew up, you had to pick one or the other. I picked the Beatles. You, you couldn't you couldn't like both of them. I don't. I'm and the I, exact opposite. I hate to be honest about it, but the Stones. I like I like the Stones. I mean, I. Your prerogative. Yeah, I think they're great, but uh, the Beatles, the diversity of it is what gets me, you know. They, oh, don't get me wrong. I think they're great. Yeah, likewise. I, I get it, though. You kind of pick your team, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I own every Beatles album on, on CD, but I never listen to them. Yeah, oh, I, I don't listen to them that much either. But, but the, the documentary, I thought, was really compelling because of what it exposed about you know, how they were, because you have your perceptions, you know what I mean? And it's, there's a real dynamic there with Yoko and all that stuff. And, you know, it was just, it was amazing to sort of get that kind of access to yep, just be yep. in the room while they're like arguing or they're fussing or they're making up and, you know, writing. And it was, it was really interesting to see that kind of. Well, whoever it was that filmed that was working for them. Right. So yeah, but I don't think it, they did it in the sense, I mean, they, they were, I think they were hoping to get content out of it to make a movie or whatever, but it just, it, it was too raw or something. It just got shelved for a long well, time. But that's, that's the thing. I mean, they'll let anybody shoot anything because they know they have control over it. Right. Right. And 30 years later, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It's water under the bridge. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was on, I did two tours with Keith Richards. He had, he had his own band in 88 and 93. The solo stuff. Yeah. Uh, and in 88, at the end of the tour, we were in, in Los Angeles and we were playing at uh, the Palladium. And we walk in the sound check and there's a whole video crew there. And there's a truck in the back, in the back parking lot uh, to record it. And everybody's looking around like, who are they, who are they shooting video of? And Keith's manager had hired this video crew and a sound company to come and document it having no idea what was gonna what, what was gonna come of it at any point right and then like eight years later they released it as a dvd and a cd like a whole box set and it was great but it was it was there was no intention of releasing it when it was shot yeah it just sat right it was there to document an era yeah right so obviously had enough money to be able to hire all those people. Right. You know, the normal band on the street can't afford to do that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of a gift to, to unearth those things or to see those things oh, yeah. later, oh, yeah. you know, and she and, knew, she knew the stuff was there all along. Yeah. It was just a matter of one day she woke up and said, Hey, let's release this. Right. 
Well, now it's like YouTube is amazing. I mean, you could see footage of, I mean, it gets, it's a rabbit hole. You could just go in there forever. And it's, uh, I don't even go on YouTube because I know I would never, <laughs> you I would won't. never eat. I would never sleep. I would just like, that would be it forever. With uh, the one thing I, I also wanted to ask about like venues and things like that is like, do you still, I mean, you know, you're, you're still shooting. Do you still shoot at those smaller clubs occasionally? Do you still go out to see that indie band? Well, I, I don't shoot the big shots anymore. I've retired from that. Every once in a while, if there's a band that I know. Yeah. Like I, I've been friends with the Black Crows since the beginning of their career. Oh, yeah. And every time they come to town, the day before the show, like clockwork, I'll get a call from Chris Robinson. Yeah, yeah. Saying, uh, hey, dude, you can be at the show tomorrow? And sometimes he says that, and I didn't even know they were going to be playing in town. Right. But I always go because they're really great guys and they're fun to hang around with. Yeah. So they played at the big outdoor, whatever you call it, the sheds. Yeah. Last summer. And uh, I drove 50 miles and hung out with them before the show and shot the show and 50 miles back home again. And uh, the pictures are up on Getty. We'll see if anybody ever wants to buy them, but you know, they're there. Right. But I would much rather go to a little club. Yeah. When I say a little club, like a, anywhere from a thousand seats down. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, my, the reason I'm, have that relationship is because when I used to go to Chicago, I would love to go to the empty bottle or the rainbow room or, you know, Shuba's or any of those places. Cause it's such a, you know, it's such a different kind of intimate relationship with a show when it's that small of a place to where you're right there, you know, well, the Shuba's is a, is right down the street from me. It's like a 10 minute drive, empty bottles, 10 minutes away. But unfortunately Bruce has never figured out that if you, put bands on stage, you should probably buy some lights. <laughs> yeah, so, lights, who cares? So, <laughs> I mean, I went to shoot a band there once and I was standing in front of the stage and I couldn't see the drummer. <laughs> it was like a dark abyss. It, it was, was a, like, they were all dressed in black and then the whole, and the, the whole stage is black. Yeah, it's true. So it's, whenever, whenever a publicist says, hey, I got a band that's playing at the Empty Bottle, I always say, well, I'll meet, I'll meet him in the afternoon at soundcheck and take him outside, right. do some pictures, you know, out on the street. Yeah. Otherwise it'll be a lead singer and that's about it. Even that, even that it's hard to do. Yeah. Did you ever photograph at the fireside? That was a fun place to play. I never went there. I never oh, went really? there. We played a show there once and what a, what a weird place to play a show, but it was fun. It's also right by my house, but I've, I've driven by there a thousand times, but I, I never went inside there. Yeah. It's a real dump. And they, uh, the Lounge Axe was, you know, legendary for, for to the Indian. Lounge Axe, I knew Julia and, and, uh, and uh, uh, what's her name? I forgot her name. Jeff Tweedy's wife. Oh, um, right, yeah. Uh, they, own, they own Lounge Axe, and I used to have pretty good access there. They, yeah. We got along really great. So I would go there once in a while. Did you ever see the cocktails play there? Never saw the cocktails. That's, you know, they, I think they did the last show there, if I'm not mistaken. Could be. Could be. I used to go see the Waco brothers there a lot. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and I saw Veruca Salt there a couple times. Yeah. I heard great things about uh, Jeff Tweedy's. Didn't he write a book? I think he just wrote a book. Yeah. I heard really good things about it. 
And uh, he's a very smart guy. Yeah, I want to I want to read it. You know, I, I used to when we were in a band, I started the band that I was in. Or not I started. We started. Uh, we were grad students at Yale and we had a side project and it was uh, like a bastardized Latin jazz band. We used to play at this dive bar called Rudy's. And one time, I guess Wilco was in town and they played and we were playing these. We would play like three hour long set, you know, shows of just like mojitos and people dancing on tables. And uh, he was in that, at some point in between songs. They were like, hey, Jeff Tweedy's in over there. <laughs> and it was, you know, this place held like 35 to 40 people or something. But it was a fun night. But he seemed like uh, a pretty, a pretty cool guy in the interviews. And I want to read that book. He's a good guy. He's, yeah. he's, uh, he's definitely one of those. <clears throat> one of those guys that you want to be friends with right yeah yeah well it sounds like i mean you've you've had like this really full experience of like meeting all these people i mean it's just i don't know it it sounds it it seems like a very interesting way to go about your creative pursuits gives me some good stories that's for sure yeah it's uh and i have bands that hire me to go out on the road with them and they don't even care if i shoot pictures of them they just want me to tell stories on in the van right when we're driving to the next city yeah yeah and then there are bands that get sick of my stories after a while and tell me to shut up <laughs> just take the picture <laughs> yeah yeah but for the most part i could usually usually tie the stories into something into an experience that's happened to us that day right and uh people appreciate that yeah for sure um all right here's I want to thank you for taking all this time. Here's my last question. What's a band or a record uh, that you listen to at home in the studio or something that would really surprise me? <laughs> a, a record? Um, I'm guessing when I, when I tell you this, you've never heard of this record. Okay. It's called Super Session. You were right. I don't know Supercession. <clears throat> Do you know who Al Cooper is? Not Alice Cooper. No, Al Cooper. Al Cooper. Sounds familiar. Al Cooper was a New York guy who his first claim to fame was a friend of his was producing a Bob Dylan record mm-hmm. and invited Al to come down to the studio and he was just sitting in the corner and he was sitting on the uh the bench for the Hammond B3. Yeah. And Bob, they were doing the song Like a Rolling Stone, which has got the greatest Hammond B3 intro in history. Really, really amazing. Yeah. That came about because Bob turned to Al, who had never played a Hammond B3 in his life. He was a piano player and said, Hey, I think we need a, a, a Hammond B3 intro in here. Can you play something? And luckily for him, the the Hammond was on because he never would have been able to figure out the switches and all the stuff on it. And he played the greatest Hammond B3 solo ever. Just so, on a, just off the cuff. Just off the cuff. And he went on to play in, in Dylan's band. He became a producer. Uh, he produced a bunch of blues rock bands in the sixties mm-hmm. Band called the electric flag. And <clears throat> there's another band called blood, sweat and tears. Um, he wrote um, a bunch of pop hits for like those pop vocal bands in the 60s. And in the 70s, he had a deal with Columbia and he 
decided to make a record. He was out in LA or San Francisco. And there was a guy, let's see, let's see how deep your music knowledge goes. <clears throat> there was a guy, a guitar player out there who was from Chicago. His name is Mike Bloomfield. Ah, uh, that, I mean, that the world's greatest, good. the world's greatest Jewish blues guitar player. <laughs> Grew up That's in Highland Park, Illinois. Used to take the L downtown and go to blues clubs. And he joined the Paul Butterfield blues band at one point. He was also Dylan's blues, blues guitar lead, lead guitar player when Dylan went electric at Newport. And he was out in San Francisco at the same time. And Al called him up and said, hey, let's book the Fillmore West and just do, we'll go and rehearse and we'll do a lot. We'll do an album, not a live album, but we'll do an album before we play there. Right. And uh, they booked two days in a recording studio. And the morning of the second day, Bloomfield was a heroin addict that eventually OD'd and died, but he couldn't make the show. I couldn't make the, the studio session. So <clears throat> he found this other guitar player that he'd heard of in, in San Francisco. His name was Steven Stills. The rest so is history. He came in and did the second day and they made this album called Super Session, which to my way of thinking is the greatest album ever recorded. Oh, Super Session. Well, I know what I'm listening to too. Yeah. And uh, that Dylan song. And then, uh, then they made they booked the Fillmore and they, they recorded live and they did a double album called uh, Bloomfield and Bloomfield and Cooper live at the at the Fillmore West. Yeah. And then Bloomfield died. And you know, I, I still think he's the greatest guitar player ever. Uh, but I also I have to say, being a Stones fan, I think uh, <clears throat> uh, the Stones have made some really great albums. Uh, you can pick any of like five of them to be a great album. Uh, in 1999, I don't don't even get me started on how this happened, but I ended up becoming Brian Wilson's road manager. I read about that and curious. And I did that, I did that. It was a total accident, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, And uh, I had never really ever even listened to Pet Sounds. But you couldn't help but listen to it because the band did most of the songs from it every night. Oh, right. And the second year of my touring with them, they did Pet Sounds in its entirety for the whole second set of the show. I'm sure people and, are happy. People consider oh, yeah. that one of the best records ever. Well, made. I, I, think, I think there's... Uh, it's always considered one of the top three greatest albums by critics. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it's up there with Sgt. Pepper. Right. And, you know, McCartney has said that they wrote, they made Sgt. Pepper to compete with Pet Sounds. Yeah. And so I really got to be a Brian Wilson fan from working with him. Yeah. And I, mean, I, listen, I listen to Pet Sounds a lot at home. It, it really... You know, it's like Warhol. Like, you can't not hear pet sounds and everything after that, in a way. Exactly. You know what I mean? There's like a little tinge of it in everything you hear. Exactly. Which is a real mark of not only like a great record, because there's a lot of great records, but uh, it's kind of like a monumental record. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. 
Did you ever oh. photograph Les Paul? Uh, yeah, once. Did you go to his I, place in Mawa? No. Oh, I okay. only shot him in concert once. But before I say that, uh, so my top, the, the, to me, the three greatest rock albums are Exiles on Main Street, right. uh, Pet Sounds, and Sgt. Pepper. What, um, that's fair. What about the three best jazz songs or jazz albums ever? Uh, kind of Blue. Of course. Did you read that book? Great book. No, I didn't. It's a I great didn't. book. Uh, I don't really have a, I, I listen to a lot of jazz, but I don't really pay attention to titles. Right. So kind of blue just sticks out. Uh, they're probably all Miles Davis albums are my, in my top three. Well, Love Supreme might be on there, right? Well, yeah, Love Supreme. I would have that. Yeah. An incredible. If I look through my iTunes, I can probably find three albums. Right. But, but yeah, uh, those are both great. I, you know, I don't know what a third one would be. Oh, maybe uh, uh, Chet Baker. Best of Chet Baker. I never really listened to Chet Baker. Really? He's so I shot, I shot Les Paul. The only time I ever shot Les Paul was at the opening of the <clears throat> House of Blues in Chicago. Oh, nice. And the grand opening. And he played with Slash. <laughs> that, that makes sense. They're just two guys sitting on stools playing Les Pauls, of course. Yeah, well, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was pretty wonderful. And you know, and speaking yeah. of great guitarists, I mean, he yeah. let's be honest, this is one of the best guitarists ever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. mean, and what and he one did of the great me. inventors of all time. I'm dying to see his house. I mean, my wife's family uh, used to live in Mawa, New Jersey, and for some reason, he lived there, it was like a random right. place to live. But they have a little museum in the town and they had like his his original eight track, you know, because his house was basically recording. So like Led Zeppelin went there and like right, go right. there, and, yep. you know, it's, the guy's a genius as far as recording. And yep. uh, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. And I love that old, uh, I love his tone, like the way he played, you know. Well, he had a style that you could, as soon as you heard him, you could tell it was him. Yeah. I think uh, they don't make him like that anymore. Not at all. I yeah. think personally too, I think Django Reinhardt would be up there for one of the best guitarists ever. I will say, I will say I did a, there's a, there was a TV show that was filmed in Chicago in the seventies called soundstage. Uh -huh. It was filmed at the, the, uh, at WTTW, which is the PBS station in Chicago. Uh -huh. And it was, do you know who Ken Ehrlich is? No, I don't. Ken Ehrlich is a, now a big time Hollywood producer. He produces the Grammy show every year okay. for CBS. Yeah. But he worked at Channel 11 at the time. And he came up with this idea of mixing up a bunch of musicians together and doing a concert show. Yeah. And he would have like Bonnie Raitt with Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and Muddy Waters with all the guys that were his accolades. Right including Mike Bloomfield. And I, I didn't shoot those shows, but I used to be like the, one of the photographers they called to shoot stills during the show. Mm -hmm. And one day they called me and said, we're doing a show that's so big. It's got to, we're doing it in two days. We're going to rehearse one day and then shoot the show the second day. And so I was hired for both days. And the first day I got to just walk around on stage front of the stage wherever I wanted to go because they weren't shooting. And it was Count Basie with Ella Fitzgerald on vocals, 
and Clark Terry on trumpet and Zoot Sims on saxophone and Joe Pass on guitar. It's a pretty epic lineup. And a, a drummer and a bass player that I have never been able to find out who they were. But they're not in a whole lot of my pictures. Yeah. But uh, it was just wondrous music for two yeah. days straight. I can imagine. That sounds like a great lineup. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic of people, too. Well, it's people that didn't, shouldn't fit together. Right. But they did because somebody put them all on stage and they had to make it work. And it's jazz, right? I yeah, mean, it's yeah. the songs, really, with jazz, you know? Well, the thing with jazz is, is you, you bend it to make it work. Yeah. You, you take your style and you make it fit what somebody else is doing. Right. Yeah, that's the whole arc of it is you're, you're taking, you know, standard or you're taking this format and you're, you're bending and tweaking it. And that's exactly. the art of it. You exactly. know? So I, I have the advantage of, of Downbeat Magazine is based here in Chicago. Right. So I, get, I shoot a lot of stuff for them. That's great. Shoot a cover or two every year for them, which means, you know, like I take Terrence Blanchard out in the middle of the street on State Street nice. in downtown Chicago, shoot him with his trumpet, you know. Yeah. I shot uh, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones in the lobby of Symphony Hall, you know, and it's, uh, it's a great resource to be able to have that magazine based here. For sure. Yeah, it's it's advantageous. I mean, you know, Chicago is like, you know, the destination. The Mississippi brought music up, you know, and it just yeah, migrated yeah. up there and it kind of like Well that's where that's where roost. Where uh um uh Louis Armstrong came to record with the hot six when he left New Orleans. He moved to Chicago and recorded for five years here. Right. And that was some of his greatest stuff. Yeah. Uh yeah, it's a, it's a great city. It is. Great city. I'm really big into blues. I, I, I love the, the whole idea of blues. I've been Buddy Guy's personal photographer for, I think, 30 years at this point. Yeah. And uh, when you talk about meeting people, just the idea that I could call Buddy up and say, hey, you're making gumbo today. And drive down to his house and have gumbo with him. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And you shot John Lee Hooker too, right? I shot the last pictures of John Lee Hooker before he passed away. What an amazing musician. Yep. Yep. And he's one of, he's one of Buddy's idols. Right. So yeah, they, they, Buddy loves the idea that I shot John Lee Hooker. Yeah. What about Lightning Hopkins? Never shot him. He, he was gone by the time I got started. Right. Uh, but I shot great, great Muddy Waters a bunch of times, Willie Dixon, yeah. Coco Taylor. Uh, and then for 25 years, I shot the Chicago Blues Festival every year. So that was, you know, 12 bands a day for three days straight. Uh, so I, my list of blues artists goes on forever. I can imagine. Was R.L. Burnside from Chicago? Not from Chicago, but he played here a couple he times. Played there, right? Yeah. He's from Mississippi. Oh, that's right. I never really understood his form of music. <laughs> that whole, that whole uh, Mississippi style, you know? Yeah. But 
young white kids love his music. Uh, well, he collaborated with John Spencer in the Blues Explosion. So right, right. That's your ticket to you know. I shot watch. John Spencer a couple times. And that those yeah. guys can play live. That was yeah. That was some energy. That's for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't really call it blues, but it was it was good. Yeah, it had a lot of stank to it. You know, it just yeah. it was like a you know, it, it had a, yeah, it, it was energetic. That's for sure. Yep. Yep. Wow, man, and who did, who haven't you photographed? <laughs> it's uh, the list is pretty extensive. Yeah, I can imagine. It goes on forever because I photographed like I photographed Pia Zadora. <laughs> didn't I didn't see that coming? Uh, I William Burroughs, really nice. William Burroughs. I photographed Diana Ross. Uh, I photographed the Fat Boys. Oh yeah, and the Beast. Oh, how can we not talk about the Beastie Boys? Photograph the Beastie Boys, uh, the Fat Boys. I took them down, took them up to Spanish Harlem. Photographed them walking up and down the street, and then they said, "Well, let's go, let's go to Brooklyn, which is where they live." Yeah. And we got in a cab and went up to Brooklyn, and we shot for about an hour. And I said, "Okay, so how do I get back to my hotel?" <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, "Well, you're on your own, white boy." <laughs> and they all just turned around and left. I was stuck in Brooklyn trying to figure out how to get back to Manhattan. What year was this? Uh, late eighties. Yeah. Um, yeah. I shot, I shot an album cover for him for an album called crushing. I know that. Right and they're, I they're on that shit. Their manager rented a 20 foot Python and we rented a studio and set up a white background and the three guys got there. They were standing on the background and the guy showed up with the Python, which was wrapped in a circle in a suitcase. That's the and best way to the, travel with the Python. He took the subway over there. Oh my God. So he, he gets, he, he opens up the suitcase and the Python's asleep. And so the manager says, okay, wrap it around. He pointed to the guy in the middle and he said, wrap it around his shoulders and then put it across the other two guys' shoulders. And these guys were like petrified. And the, oh, yeah. the guy with the Python said, don't worry, he's asleep. He's not going to move. He's not going to do anything. And I shot about 20 shots and the Python woke up Uh oh. and just moved, over. moved a little bit. Yeah. And the three guys all in unison shrugged and the Python fell to the ground behind oh, them. They went God. running out of the room and that was <laughs> the end of it. Yeah. Uh. But I love the idea of that. You know what, guys? Let's get a python. Let's yeah. bring him over to Brooklyn, and we'll take a we'll we'll shoot that. <laughs> in 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 New York City, right? Know, python. Yeah. 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 You got to admire that. That that was a. Their manager was a guy who made his fortune <clears throat> by putting a cassette deck on his windowsill in Hell's Kitchen and dropping a microphone down to the main floor, main main. Uh, street level, uh -huh. and just recording street noises and, and selling cassette tapes of street uh, noises. For like samples, for like people who wanted that in there. I don't know what they wanted it for. Maybe they just wanted to listen to New York. Maybe for samples. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just the ambiance, the beautiful din of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, yeah the garbage trucks and the police sirens. <laughs> people cursing and yeah. bottles breaking. But he's uh, and he and then he found the Fat Boys at a hip hop contest. Nice. And they became famous. But yeah, you, know, you look at my list and you just start laughing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I I I remember 
that venue that I didn't shoot Tom Petty in. Mm-hmm. One day I went over there and there was a singer by the name of Dolly Parton that was playing there. And I just walked in the back door and I walked into her dressing room and, hey, Dolly, what's going on? And uh, photographed her there. I photographed Kenny Rogers there. Uh, the gambler. <laughs> you, you could pick any musical form. And How about I, Herb Albert? Have you ever photographed Herb no, Albert? No, he had already quit playing music and ah. he, he was running the record company. Speaking of funny photos, he took quite a few. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the photo, funny ones. The, the one, the whipped cream and other delights, the yeah. album cover where the girls covered in whipped cream. Yep. Uh, there are only two albums that I ever bought in my life and never listened to the albums. <laughs> it was and just for the visual? And just for the visuals. The other one was an album by the Ohio Players called Honey. Oh, but that's a great record. I never listened to it. I still have oh, it. Man. But it's, you know, it's a double album so you open up the cover and it's a naked girl pouring honey on herself sure you have to buy it just to have that oh, yeah it's, it's a great visual but Ohio, i love the ohio players the funky yeah. worm song is hilarious i mean that will live in infamy in my head well so so you you know continuing my list i shot george clinton a bunch of times nice i uh bootsy collins once came over to my house to do a photo shoot you probably didn't photograph him, but if you did, I, we can officially end the interview and I'm going to go like shoot off into space. But did you ever photograph Sun Ra? No. Okay. But I photographed the Sun Ra Orchestra. The which orchestra? Like yeah. Orchestra, which is a bunch of guys that are left from there with a bunch of new guys. Yeah. I played at the Jazz Fest in Chicago. A yeah, yeah, they still do it, man. They're still yeah. out there. And, and uh, is his name Gilmore? Uh, yeah, the sax player. I mean, it, they're still out there doing it. They were great. They were great. Yeah, uh, Sun Ra was amazing. I mean, Count Basie was his hero. He was a great yeah, pianist. Yeah, yeah. Never shot him. But, you know, a lot of a lot of jazz guys, you know, yeah. like a lot of, you know, Sonny Rollins a bunch of times. Uh, great, great musician. Um, Stanley Turrentine. I mean, the, the, the list, you know, El Giro, Witten, Miles, uh, Branford, Alice Marcellus. There's a lot of them. You, Cab Calloway, not. Shot Cab Calloway once. You did? Yep. Pittsburgh zone. There's a few Pittsburgh I went jazz back guys. in the dressing room and shot some pictures of them, you know, nice. with a mirror behind them and shot his show. I got pictures of Cab. How about Art Blakey? Only once. I, oh, really? I, you did? I got one picture of him, like, very. I didn't really know who he was, but he was playing at this big festival in Chicago and mm -hmm. I shot some pictures of them and got one really great picture of them. Yeah, jazz messages were great. Yeah, yeah. Pivotal. Yeah, that's I'm envious. That's a lot of it's pretty amazing. If I the list is in my other computer, I could just start reading off names and it'll just blow your mind. Well the but so tell me about the book. <laughs> I guess we gotta get around to that. Sure. Uh, that's kind of the reason for this. So, uh, so this friend of mine kept on telling me that I should do a book. And she had a friend who was a publisher. So one day she brought me over there, introduced me to him, and the rest is history. And it's coming out in June, I think, which means it should be here in like April. Yeah. Depending on the whole supply chain problem. Yeah, I know. It's, it's being printed in China. It's a thing, right? The whole. Yeah, it's a, it might be sitting on a boat uh, <laughs> up, a, 
off of Los Angeles for two months waiting to get into the harbor. Yeah. But it was supposed to be out a, a year ago Christmas. But, you know, with the pandemic and all right. that stuff and everything's delayed. I'm guessing it's going to be a pretty, you know, substantial object. It's, uh, it's, it's got over 200 photos in it. Uh, some stories, not a whole lot of text. Uh, there are some photos that need explanation. Right. Like, did you see the BC Boys shot? Yes. With the beer cans? I mean, I, I'm familiar. I mean, I grew up, I memorized every line on uh, License to Ill when I was a little kid. So, you know, okay. they, they were big for me. So um, you can't just put that photo in a book without explaining how <laughs> it came about. Right. So, you know, basically the story is they, when fight for your right was got really big. Yeah. Budweiser came to them and said, we want to sponsor your tour. And so they signed a deal and took the money. And then somebody from Budweiser went out to see them and couldn't believe what he was seeing. Cause they were a little, shall we say risque? Yeah. Rambunctious. So Budweiser fired them and their publicist called me up and said, Hey, I got this really great idea. Budweiser just fired us. Can you go over to the Aragon Ballroom? They're playing tomorrow night and buy, on your way there, buy a, a six pack of every kind of beer you could find in a liquor store and bring them all in there and take a picture of them auditioning a new sponsor for the tour. <laughs> so I set up a table and I put all the beer on the table and they came walking out and I said, guys, you got to do me one favor. You could open up any of the beers you want, just aim them away from me because these lights are really expensive and, you know, my cameras are really expensive. So they said, okay, no problem. And I started shooting and they opened up like 12 beers in a row and aimed them right at me. And <laughs> you knew it was going to happen. I was right? completely drenched in beer. Uh, all my lights had to be taken in to have to be repaired. Uh, but it was a great shot. Yeah, I mean, worth it in hindsight. But in yeah, hindsight, probably, it was well worth it. Probably irritating whenever all your equipment smelled like, you know, frat house. Well, it all had to be taken apart and cleaned. Oh, geez. Just to, to make it workable again. Yeah, but I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you know, without, you know, blowing smoke, whatever, I mean, it's history. Like, you, you're, it's, it's historic, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. So you'll take a little beer on the light. For oh, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. And there are, you know, there are shots that I took that are in the book. Like, uh, I once took Motorhead to McDonald's. <laughs> and I let got... Me, let I, me in McDonald's. Yeah. I, I, they're sitting at a table in McDonald's with Big Macs, like, falling out of their mouths and all that. That's two pages wide in the book. Nice. You know, there's uh, there's some really good stuff in there. Yeah, and it shows imagine. it shows the breadth of what I do. There's a whole section on world music. Uh, there's a whole section on jazz, whole section on blues, whole section on country, uh, section on pop. You know, I got J Lo in there. That seems like it'd be a nice. She would be a nice subject to photograph. Yeah, but I've also got. Uh, Dobe Ganor. Don't know. Was that. a, a Ghanan, Ghanian? Is that how it's pronounced? Ghanaian. Ghanaian 
beautiful woman, Ghanaian singer. Nice. Uh, I got Christina Aguilera. There you go. But I also got Iggy Pop and I got Lou Reed. Basically all music, really. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to show that you know, I don't just shoot one kind of music. Right. I think uh, this book is going to prove the point. It's a lot of hair metal in there. There's Motley Crue, there's Warrant, a lot of Ozzy Osbourne. Um, the list goes on forever. A fun fact about Motley Crue is in high school, junior high school, I spent more money in a jukebox on Motley Crue than any other band in my life. They were, uh, they were kind of uh, everywhere. Yeah. In those days, they they, they, they hit the mother load. They hit yes. the mother load better than any of those other hair metal bands. Right. Although Bon Jovi did pretty well. Yeah, Bon Jovi did really well. Bon Jovi's in the book. Uh, bon Jovi's one of the few guys that I still, when he comes to town, I have total access to him. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, he's a really good guy. Yeah, that that era. I mean, that was like my, you know, sweet spot because I'm a little younger than that. You know, uh, my first concert was Bon Jovi, Cinderella, and White Snake. Yep, yep. I shot all of them. How's that? Uh, that's a that's a salve for the years. That's uh, that's some that's some happening music. Yeah, yeah. I. I uh, I can't say I really like that kind of music, but I, I was like the king of hair metal. Yeah. Back in those days. Well, it was, let's be honest. I mean, it was like the popular, it was the most energetic sort of music at that time. Yeah. And the most visual. Yes. It was definitely glammy. You know? Yep. Yep. A lot of hairspray, a lot of spandex, yeah. a lot of jumping around. Yeah, I can't and, imagine uh, what those rooms smelled like. I don't know. <laughs> I tried not to go in those rooms. But, yeah, uh, N95 for those rooms, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, uh, those were some good times. I'm sure. There were, there were the, the lead singer of Quiet Riot used to call me up every time they came to town to take them out for pizza because he knew I knew where all the good pizza places were. Oh, nice. Quiet Riot. I had that record with that guy, the concrete or the, what was it called? You know what I'm talking about? There's like a guy breaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yep. God, yep. That song was huge. Yep. And did you, oh, uh, did, how about D Meyer? Uh, we could do this forever. Jeez. Did you do Twisted Sister? Oh, yeah. D Snyder? D Snyder. Yeah, yeah. That, that record cover. I will never forget that. My friend showed me it when I went over to his house. And he was like wearing the makeup and he had the bone and stuff. And yeah. Like, what yeah. the hell is going on here? Yeah, they were. They're still around. I mean, he's making movies now. He's a he's a horror film director now. Oh, really? Yeah, you should look him sense. up. He's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, check it out. He's making more money now than he was when he was in a band. Yeah, it's funny how some of these like '80s, you know, the musicians go on to do things in other areas and they they do really well at it. It's pretty interesting. It, I I find that much more interesting than the the band that. The lead singer has died, but the band is still out there playing. Brutal. And they used to play 20,000-seat arenas, and they're playing in 500-seat clubs. That's depressing. With a new lead singer. And, you know, it's like, guys, why don't you just, like, give it up? Right. It's time to – or start something new anyways, you know? Yeah. But, they, you know, a lot of them didn't save their money. 
Yeah. And they're, you know, they, they need the money. And it's probably midlife crisis or, you know, trying to recapture some of that old mojo that's definitely left the building. There's a movie that I saw a couple of years ago. It's, it's usually on Showtime. I don't know the name of it, but it's the, it's the story of Quiet Riot today. Boy. Because the lead singer died. The original guitar player is Randy Rhodes, who went with Ozzy and then, and then died. Yeah. And the three guys that were left decided to find a new lead singer. And the drummer, Frankie Benelli, is the star of this movie. And they show him, like on the phone, talk, calling singers from all over the country to come and audition in between driving his kids to school. And he looks just like he did when he was in Quiet Riot. And he's still in Quiet Riot. But uh, there's a scene where they're playing a big festival in Germany and the singer that they pick to take Kevin's place um, forgot the words to come on Feel the Noise. Oh, boy. And at the end of the show, the singer's back in catering and he's just got his head down on the desk, on the table, like really depressed because he knows he's going to get fired. And Frankie comes walking back there and stands over him and looks at him and just says one word. He says, really? <laughs> and turns around and walks away. He should have pulled the pro move of just pointing the mic at the audience. And yeah. Letting them sing the audience words. sure knew every word. That he yeah, saw. they knew. They were bigger fans than he was. Exactly. I mean, they're paying money to see Quiet Riot 20 years past prime. I mean, you know, they're gonna, yeah, prime. they're going to know every word. <laughs> but you know what? There are still record labels mostly in California that are still releasing unreleased tracks from those bands. Wow. And every time they do, they call me up and they're looking for pictures. That's funny. And it's like a cottage industry right now. Yeah. I had like two quiet riot covers in the last year. That's great. I, I mean, that's the last thing I thought we'd be talking about. <laughs> well, you, you brought it up. No, it's great. I mean, quite right. I was like, listen to those records when I was a kid. It's just <laughs> funny. I haven't thought of them in so long, but like these people, you know, they, that stuff lives on, you know? Oh, yeah. They were really nice guys, too. They, they always treated me right. The Night Ranger guys treated me great. Uh, Motley Crue, not so much, but they were fairly nice guys. Yeah. And they made up for their lack of real musical skill by putting on a really great show. Yeah. And being really fun to watch. Yeah, they were living it up. I mean, yeah. it was the 80s, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like everyone was. Yeah. Those were the days. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, when's the, so the book, you, well, you don't know the date it comes out, but it's there, coming. There's June. So nobody's nobody's given an actual date yet. Nobody's they, the chance picking a date because nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. Is it pre-order yet? It's on Amazon. Okay. There you go. It's on Amazon, but you know, it doesn't say a release date. Right. They're like, you can order this. You'll get it at some point. Don't yeah, bug us. You'll get it one day. Yeah. One I day. have this, I have a book for this podcast coming out where it's, I think it's supposed to be May, but to your point, we don't know, you know, things Nobody take time. Knows. And books, no one knows. Photo books are all printed in on the 
Eastern Rim. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's the hardest place to get stuff shipped from. Right. And books, obviously, you have to put them on a boat. You can't put them, you can't airship them because they right. weigh too much. Yeah, it'll cost more so, than the price. So, to yeah, we're, we're, at the, we're at the mercy of commerce. Well, I'm excited to see the book. Um, I, it's an amazing, you know, life that you've had in this, in this, you know, in music and in capturing it and creating history with it. So, um, thanks so much for talking. It was really cool to, to hear your story. No problem. Sorry. I was late. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. Hey, that's rock and roll, man. Gotta be, gotta be a little late. Right? Well, no, I, I really pride myself on being on time. You notice I, I, I came on right at eight Oh one. I had a feel, you know, I had a feeling that it was yeah. the uh, the Eastern Standard Time, Central Time thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually usually a lot smarter than that. That's ah, all good. Listen, it's it's been uh, it's been fun to talk to you. Pleasure, pleasure. And um, I seriously, wait, I wait, can't wait. Questions. I'm thanks. I'm gonna definitely, you know, tonight I'm gonna listen to the, the Bob Dylan. I'm listening to Super Session, and I'm gonna pre-order the book. That's the, my my oh, order of operation. It was great to talk to you, man. Thanks pleasure. so much for taking all the time. 